The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 468. If you're going to spend time, money, resources, energy, heart, um, you know, you put your whole thing into writing a book, then it better give you a return on that investment. That is my feeling. If you've always wanted to write a book, but felt you didn't have enough in you for a book, then the message from today's guest may be an encouragement to you. She says you don't need a long book published by a traditional publisher to get what you need. You need to get short, valuable ideas out to your market in a professional way as quickly as possible. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where virtually every single week we sit down with a successful and inspiring author and we chat about his or her latest book and their unique insights on topics like leadership, productivity, mindset, habits, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and much more. My guest today is Debbie, or Debs as she prefers, Jenkins. And Debs' book is called Stop Writing Books, Nobody Reads, the dangerously effective way to write and publish a book that people read and refer. I'll be asking Debs to share with us how to answer the question, what job should your book ultimately do? How to use credibility cues as signs and signals that you can solve a particular problem. The importance of understanding which of the three types of books it is you're writing and why you should consider only two of them and lots more. If you've been listening to recent episodes of the podcast, you've probably heard me mention the Read to Lead community online at jeffbrown.me and how you can get access to a free business book summary every single week. Over the weekend, I added a free tools and resources section for those who join the community for free. So now you not only get free book summaries every week, but also access to tools, resources, things like apps, interviews, and other exclusive content I'm sharing nowhere else but inside the Read to Lead community. I'll be offering some Read to Lead premium options uh, down the road that you may want to look at when the time comes, but there's plenty of content inside the Read to Lead community that's free. Again, check it out. Just go to jeffbrown.me. Debbie Jenkins started her first business, a marketing and website design agency in 1996. She wasn't a marketer. She had never designed a website. She didn't have any clients. She was leaving a well-paid, prestigious job, but it couldn't be that hard, could it? Well, for over 25 years, she's been helping expert business owners, coaches, and consultants create books, websites, articles, apps, membership sites, courses, valuable business assets that help them grow their influence and leave a legacy. In 2011, she sold her publishing business, embarked on a fabulous midlife crisis, sold everything, got divorced, and moved to the disaster farm in Spain where she rescues animals. Her latest book is called Stop Writing Books Nobody Reads the dangerously effective way to write and publish a book that people read and refer. Well, Debs, I am delighted to have you on the Read to Lead podcast. I first want to say thank you to Ann Latham for making the introduction, but welcome here. Glad you're here. 
Hi, thanks, Jeff. It's so lovely to be here, actually. It's great to speak to you. And um, thank you to Anne for introducing me. And I know that you've spoken to Anne twice already. So, like, she's obviously made a good impression. She she has. And, and I think she holds the record for the quickest return visit on the podcast in the nearly 10 years that, that, that we've been doing this. Uh, I, I think you'll probably have her again. <laughs> she's fabulous. <laughs> I, I have a feeling. Yes. Yeah. Well, the title of your book is quite unique. You work with authors, and it seems rather unusual, to say the least, that you are telling people, in essence, to stop writing books nobody reads. I want to touch on that a little bit, what led to you coming up with that title and how that sort of mindset impacts your your whole philosophy of what you do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So I've been helping people write books in one way or another for 20 odd years. And I've helped them at different stages. I've rescued some books. I've helped create books from zero. I've ghostwritten books. So I've kind of come at this from so many different angles. I also ran a publishing company uh, and then sold my part in that and now have a new publishing company. So over the years, I've kind of seen all of the different, um, well, not maybe not all, <laughs> I hope not, you know, I'd like to carry on learning, but I've seen so many different problems that we get ourselves into with books mm. and with what our thinking pattern that leads us to create a book in the first place. A couple of years ago, I got very, very, very frustrated. And I think sometimes the best ideas come from frustration. Mm. And I was like, how is it that my clients and we, we're putting in all this effort um, and we're creating something that we think is beautiful and fantastic and interesting, but people aren't reading it. Um, they, you know, they, they might read, you know, maybe a few, a few thousand copies, but why aren't people reading it and then doing the things my clients have suggested? Because my clients are so smart and they've got brilliant ideas. And it was frustrating me that people weren't reading the books they were writing. Mm. So I kind of went back to basics and said, what do we have to do to get a book read and referred mm. and sort of brought it all the way back to the basics? So that's where the idea came from. Yeah. And I want to get into this patterns thing you talked about. You actually call them anti-patterns the, and, and, the, and the bad outcomes they're, they're often responsible for. Can you give us some sort of examples of, of what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. I'm an engineer by background, so um, I tend to use quite a few engineering type words. And anti-patterns is a so forgive me. I dive into systems and processes and formulas and at a drop of a hat. Um, so the whole thing for me about writing books is that they are an asset for your business, and if they're not an asset. If, if you don't turn them into an asset for your business, if you don't consider them an asset for your business, then it's it's a bit of a, um, well, you can do it for fun, obviously, but it's mm. not going to get you the objective you want. Mm. Now, what I found was that there are these anti-patterns. These are the common knowledge that um, people share and talk about. Uh, if you met somebody in the pub and you said, should I write a book? They'd say, yeah, you should write it in a week and you should um, make a really, really big book and uh, that will give you loads of credibility and everybody will come and buy from you. Okay, so these are the sort of the guy in the pub type <laughs> comments. Mm. Um, and I think there are at least five anti-patterns. <laughs> that I, I kind of rail against. One is the book in a week. Uh, yes, it's possible to write a book in a week. It's possible to write a book in a weekend. It's 
probably with our delicious AI friends, probably possible to write a book in a day. Um, but the question is, should you? And will you create a book that is read and referred? Will you create a book that is an asset for you and for your business? So that's the first one. The second one is this idea of your book being the third factor, the calling card, the um, nobody ever throws a book away. Yeah, you're probably right. I, d- I don't think I've ever thrown a book away anyway. Um, I'm surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of books. But the thing about the calling card idea and the business card idea is you don't actually want them to keep your book on their desk or on their shelf or in the drawer. You actually want them to read it because it's only when they read it will they do what you want them to do, get the result you want them to get, and then refer the book. So calling cards, I don't know about you, Jeff, but I just shove them in drawers i used to have them or oh, in the olden days you just have my like my um calling card booklet with all of them in file beautifully and i don't think that's a good enough reason to write a book mm. just for the calling card factor another one that really stresses me <laughs> is this idea that being an author will get you the credibility will get you the authority it's absolutely completely the other way around it's mm-hmm. being the authority gives you the the right to write the right book. Everybody has a book in them. That's probably true. I'm not going to disagree. It's probably true. But not everybody should write a book because you have to ask yourself, yes, maybe I have a book in me, but is that the right vehicle to get the job done? I fairly frequently say I'm the only book coach who tells people not to write a book Um, because sometimes it's not the right vehicle. And then the final one is because most of the people who should write a book are experts there they are knowledgeable they've got you know this depth and breadth and um, experience and knowledge the tendency or the desire is to write a really big book mm. you know like the the 60 70 000 words book and there's this overwhelm of information mm. and i don't think people want information we are drowning in information what they want is a transformation and you can mm. get that in a short book you don't have to have a big book to get that transformation for the reader. No, and a lot of that too, it seems, and, and I have a traditionally published book, and and, and so I, I don't think I'm speaking that term by saying this. I think a lot of that with, the, with regard to the thud factor, as you called it, and you know, a thicker book or a bigger book comes from oftentimes traditional publishers who think, I believe, this is my opinion, it's got to be 200 plus pages to justify selling at a certain price and all those things. I got tons out of your book, very different perspective from all the other books I read about writing books. I think it's 120 some pages or something like that. Yes, less than 20,000 words. And I don't look at it and value it any less because it's not longer. In fact, I appreciated that about it. You know, I could cover it in, in an hour here, an hour there. And, and so I, I look at that as making a book more valuable. And there was a time, oh gosh, I can't remember what, in the 1920s and 30s when authors were paid by the word. So to write books, fiction books. So the more words they wrote, the more verbose they were, the more they went on and on and on and on, the more they get paid. So they're actually rewarded for too many words. Whereas now we are rewarded for brevity. Yeah. In the world we live in, it's almost an absolute 
must with attention spans what they are. We interviewed an <laughs> author just a few weeks ago, Dr. Gloria Mark, a book called Attention Span. The average attention span, she said, the science says is about 45 seconds. And, and you, you've got to write, uh, how is it you say it? You quoted somebody on this. Uh, I think it was Derek Sivers uh, about keeping people's interest. It's not about attention spans. It's about interest spans. There exactly, we go. Exactly. That's the quote. Well done for remembering it. This is the thing that always surprises me. It surprises me and it doesn't surprise me. People on average watch 52 minutes of one minute TikTok videos. <laughs> Okay, so that's one minute, one minute, one minute, one minute, one minute, you know, really short videos. And they go, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> and they just kind of like blast through these TikTok videos. And I think, no, people don't do that. And then I kind of had a look at my own. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, okay, yes, well, actually, maybe they do. Um, I'm on the lower side of that, you know, of that average. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interest rather than volume that we're looking yeah. for. I'm not a TikTok user, but I, I have been on you know, the little YouTube shorts and uh, Instagram. And I have been shocked when I've been caught into that, sucked into that world. And going back, I did exactly what you did and, and, and looking at and seeing how many videos I actually watched and how many minutes that, that amounted to. I was just shocked at, at, at how much time I wasted. Yes. And how easily it was to get pulled into that. Well, there, there's a question you, you posed in chapter one that we need to answer with regard to our book. And, and that's the, what job should your book do? And, 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 and how do we make sure it gets read? What are some of those things? In the olden days, books were like a mark of um, that you'd made it. So if you got published, you kind of made it. Mm. Now, that's not what books are about. Books are assets for our business. They are a way of us getting an idea across in a way that people enjoy reading and, and feel is valuable. However, and I'm thinking about business books here. I'm always thinking about business books, not academic books or fiction or biographies. In order for your book to be an asset, it absolutely needs to have a job to do for your business. And the job it can do, it, I mean, you get to decide it's your book, uh, but the job it can do is what determines whether it is an asset for your business or turns into a liability. Mm. So if you're going to spend time, money, resources, energy, heart, um, you know, you put your whole thing into writing a book, then it better give you a return on that investment. That is my feeling. And the way to do that, the way to give your job a book, your book a job to do is to think of it, it I think of it in two things I think of it about the book has an operational job to do and a relational job to do mm. uh, for your business and you get to pick so operational things are like it could generate revenue you know you could sell it just you know you're allowed to sell your book um <laughs> it could save time or save money so for example it may help people understand what you do and what you're talking about so it saves time on the on that discovery call mm. um or it might be a book that's wonderful for new recruits if you're running a big organization it could be the book that helps them understand your culture and bring you in so it can save time and save money and also it can increase the value of your business so it can with royalties with using your book at, um, maybe with partnerships then you can use your book to actually increase the value of your business if you were thinking of getting investment in your business or selling your business in the future mm. so your book there is an asset for your business so that's the sort of operational side it's like the, the relatively dry operational side but really really important jobs and if you don't know what what you want your book to do on that side then it's not even really worth thinking about the other side which is the relational side which is the more fun side as well mm. 
if you're running a business, if you're an entrepreneur or a thought leader or a consultant or, or you're a CEO, then your uh, responsibilities are to bring people into your world, convince them that you've got something interesting to say and sell and then sell them and then encourage those people to become referrers. Now, I call this the suspects, prospects, expects, referrers pipeline it's a relational thing other people have like seven steps some people have three steps it doesn't really matter how many steps there are but there is a flow of a relationship where in the suspects people don't know who you are and you need to get their attention mm. then they put their hand up and say hey i'm interested and they become prospects people who have given you some information and then if they like what you're talking about and they like the value you've delivered, they might become experts, clients, mm. people who actually really love you and give you money to share the value that you have. And then your ultimate goal, perhaps the one some of us forget, is turn them into referrers. So you want them to say how great you are and tell everybody else. And every time there's an opportunity, your name comes to mind. So that little row, suspects, prospects, experts, referrers, your book, this is the beauty of a book, one, one of the few assets, I think, that can work really well in any of those stages of the relationship. The beauty of your book is that it can turn suspects into prospects. It can get people to say, hey, that's interesting because they maybe you give it away for free and now you've got their contact details. Or you can give your, you can sell your book as the first interaction that somebody has with you, the first time that they provide money for the value. That's, you know, prospects to experts. Mm. Or you can use it for experts to refer us. So your book can be so brilliant that everybody who reads it just tells everybody else. And that like now is a beautiful closed loop. So when I think of and, and the first few conversations I have with anybody when they're talking about writing their book, mm. we focus really strongly on what's its job? What's it going to do? How would you know if it had been successful? Another thing you talk about in chapter one, we didn't really hit on this, and then I'll move to actually other chapters. <laughs> I do have other questions about other chapters, is this idea of credibility clues. I guess you, you hinted at it a little bit, but how and when can we use them as, as signs and signals that we can actually solve the problem that people have? So credibility clues, I love credibility clues, and I love thinking them as credibility clues rather than individual things, because credibility clues include things like testimonials and awards and stages you've spoken on and events you've been a guest at and jobs that you've done for clients things you know all of the, the the normal things we think of when we think of creating testimonials for our business your book is a credibility clue from the moment you start thinking about writing it don't wait till you've got the book it's not a badge of honor it's the whole process if you're thinking of writing a book it's because you've got something fascinating interesting and valuable to say that by itself means you should be telling people about it even before you've written a word so you can use your book as a credibility clue right at the beginning in the thinking stage. And I put a lot of attention for my clients in that thinking stage. We spend more time there than pretty much anywhere else. Because uh, once you've thought it through and got the thinking done, then everything else is easier. But that thinking stage, don't be quiet. Don't keep it all secret. <laughs> Talk to people about your book. Ask for case stories. Tell people that you found something interesting or you've been doing some research and you found this. So that's a credibility clue because you're writing a book. Then you've got the chance to drop credibility clues 
in the book things like when I was working with the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or... When I was on Jeff Brown's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> when, I was on, when I was on Jeff Brown's podcast, I just mentioned... <laughs> exactly. That's incredible. It's fantastic. And that's exactly how to drop it in. Um, so you're not showing off. You're not like, here is a list, here's the list of my achievements. You're actually in the book. You're gently dropping these clues and then when you publish the book obviously now it's a credibility clue because uh, you now have a book people are giving you testimonials they're giving you reviews on amazon maybe you've got a category bestseller or an amazon bestseller or a wall street bestseller maybe you've gone up for an award all these things though so it's not only the book that is a credibility clue it's a whole process uh, that you go through that gets you there I can remember doing exactly that. Again, with a traditionally published book, I had about 15 months to talk about the book before the book actually came out. But I, I enjoyed that process. I enjoyed doing that on social media, checking in with people who follow me. Here's here's the latest or, hey, here's a couple of covers that we're considering and, and those types of, of things and, and, and building that anticipation. Uh, for yeah. it was, was, was a lot of fun and, and I enjoyed that. And other ways of dropping credibility that you talked about, I think, are, are something that we need to keep in mind. It's not just the book itself. Absolutely. I think people are, um, are dismissive of traditional publishing and I'm agnostic about all publishing methods. Whatever is the right publishing method for you and for the book is the, is the one you select. Mm. I think one of the good things that you've just identified about traditional publishing is that there are these very clear stages and there are pauses between action so rather than you're going i've written a book in a weekend now i've got to sell it there is that nicely paced um time for um for dropping those credibility clues uh, i want to ask you about the importance of understanding which of the three types of books it is you're writing and and why you suggest we consider only two of them. I thought this was particularly interesting. I'm I'm thankful that I think my book is in one of the two you recommend, not the one you it don't. <laughs> it is. I checked. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, am I going to get in trouble here? Get myself in trouble. I get myself in trouble all the time. Okay. So I, I have this mental model. It's called Directions Map Landmark Compass. And the idea came from Dan Rome. I don't know if you've ever read Dan Rome's Back of a Napkin. He's been on the show three times. Oh, there you go. So Matt, Anne has got Dan to beat. So that's kind of like, you know, Anne Latham, you've got to get on the show three times <laughs> <laughs> to beat Dan. I love Dan. And one of, in, in Back of a Napkin, he has a, it's a quite a throwaway line. It really is. He just says, directions, map and landmark. And for me, that was like, boom, mm. directions, map and landmark. That was the clue I'd been looking for. And so now I use this mental model in pretty much every communications I think of doing, whether I'm writing an email, whether I'm asking my assistant to do something for me, whether I am in a group, whether I'm writing a book. And I think, what am I writing? What are we doing here? Is it something directional? Is it mapping? Or is it landmark? So direction's quite obvious. It's like, you know, how do we get from A to B? You go, you, you need to know where A is. We need to have the common starting point. And then, then we have a list of things to do to get to B. Maps are, most people think, oh, I understand maps, but maps can be tricky. And that this is why like my least favorite. Um, and I've written a few map books and they've made me lots of money, but they are challenging. 
Okay, so maps, you are describing the same terrain as other people are describing. So you're explaining, I don't know, let's say it's neurolinguistic programming. So the map book covers all of the elements of neurolinguistic programming. Or let's say you're describing artificial intelligence, which is like on everybody's lips at the moment. Mm -hmm. So your map book for AI would describe the whole territory of, of AI. Okay. Mm. And it just even saying those words, it will describe the whole territory, gives me the shakes because where are the edges? Where are the edges of your map? When do you decide that that's far enough? How deep do you go on different parts of the map? So map books tend to take a life of their own. Um, and then there are the landmark books. These are the books where you, the author, you, the expert, are standing on the top of a mountain with a big flag. Okay. And you're up there with your flag and you're saying, hey, the view up here from up here is just fabulous. If you get up this mountain, you're going to have all of these wonderful benefits. And this is why you need to come up this mountain. And I am going to get you up my mountain with emotion, with enthusiasm, with inspiration, with excitement, with uh, not just logic, with um, <laughs> stories and explanations and beauty and awesomeness okay so but you're standing on the top of a mountain with a big flag and there are other mountains and there are other people standing on their mountains and there are other flags so you've got to have the flag that's most exciting and inspirational to the people okay so those are the three categories that i think about books and as you mentioned the maps one you want to avoid <laughs> yeah if at all possible it gets a little out of hand out of control and it tends to be because i've helped people write their first books i've helped people write their fifth and sixth books it tends to be first time authors accidentally write a map mm. and so when i've rescued books it's usually because what started off as a great idea accidentally turned into a map and it turns into a map for a couple of reasons but the most important reason i think is especially for the first time authors um there's two parts one is that they think that this is the only book they're going to write so they have to get everything in it and the second part is because they're an expert they think that they have to demonstrate that expertise by telling in the book everything that they know if you're on a directions book or a landmark book they're easier to handle and to get finished one of our goals when we're writing a book is to finish it. Well, you talked about just now the issue of feeling like you have to share everything you're an expert in, but related, sort of related to that, talk about why though each chapter must include your intellectual perspective as, as well as the, the, the what you call the concept of, of the value per page and your lexicon, those types of yes. things. I am quite, I'm, I get quite excited about lots of things, but I, one of the things I'm most excited about with books is because you are writing them, it's your opportunity to actually say what you want to say in the way you want to say it. Mm. Now, most people who come to writing a book have got something valuable to say. They've got something important to say. They have understood something other people haven't. They have synthesized an idea and they have a different way of thinking about it. They have had an aha moment where now everything seems easy to them because they now understand this and they want to share it with you. One of the challenges 
for people is they tend to want to to demonstrate where this idea has come from. They tend to want to explain the sort of background. So it's like, then I did this, then I did this, then I did this. I learned all of these things from everybody. Da, 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 da. And what they end up doing is referencing the rest of the world. So they reference X model and Y model and this book and that book and this person and another person. And then that's what ends up turning into a map, by the way, uh, because we end up referencing all of these things. Ah. Um, and what I want my clients to do is tell us, okay, we know you're so smart. You've done all of this. You've read all of these things. Mm-hmm. What is the synthesis? What is the intellectual perspective that you bring that we haven't heard before? Mm-hmm. So we know that these models exist like they're, I don't know, um, lean and agile and NLP. We know all these things exist, but what is your synthesis of that and that is what i call the intellectual perspective mm. and i uh, i use this as a as a, a rule up front for writing but also as a lens at the end for testing so uh, the rule up front is every chapter has to have some of your intellectual perspective we can't just accidentally map what's going on what everyone else is saying and when we come to the end of it we go back and we say where is the intellectual perspective in this chapter where is the special you in this chapter? And then I'm even meaner to my authors and say they actually have value per page. We can't flip five pages and not have got to something that's going to give the reader uh, a change of perspective or, or a, a step forward. Mm. So I'm quite bossy. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm somebody who, when I'm reading a good book, is highlighting and underlining just about every page. And I used to think, why do I do that? Why do I highlight so much? And I think I've come to realize, based on what you've just said, that, well, I apparently spend most of my time just reading the good books with the yes. value per page that I seem to find every time I open up a book. What are some of the 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 tests the reader is going to put your book through and, and that you have to make sure your book passes there are specific things here that you mentioned in the book that the readers looking for whether they realize it or not yeah i think the first one even though we're all told to not don't judge a book by its cover we do and we can't get away from that i will admit to looking at covers and going oh i'm not going to read that that looks like a bad book uh, so that's one of the first tests, which is it, it, it's a and it's, it's kind of a split second test. And some people will tell you that there are rules to what the cover should have, and there are some design rules, obviously. Um, but I think it's cover design is an art and architecture. So there are rules, there are like the format, but then there is a great big dose of art that goes in there, and that's really hard to define precisely yeah a great cover you've really got to get a good cover the next thing obviously is title and subtitle and maybe cover and title and subtitle kind of come at the top of this test that Mm. uh potential readers do so does it sound like the book that i want to read does it sound interesting does it talk to me the reader and uh, i also run a tube test on people which is if you're sitting on the london tube if you were sitting on the tube they had your book in their hands would they be proud to be reading that book or would they be covering it in brown paper <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's my tube test and that covers the cover and the title and subtitle then a thing that I think lots of people forget is the table of contents. For in Amazon, for example, and I mentioned Amazon too many times, um, you can see the table of contents. You can see what's in the book. And this is a, one of the best 
chances of telling people this book is for you you need to read this because this is interesting going to learn this too frequently i say introduction chapter one chapter two chapter three chapter <laughs> conclusions and i'm like no give me something to grasp and to get stuck into some meat some meat yeah and some and some intrigue maybe and some why why did she say that why has he written that as a chapter title give me something interesting blurb as well obviously blurbs are really really important but i think if you can get your um title and t- subtitle a cover and table of contents pretty good once you've passed those tests mm-hmm. they might read your book um right. they're still not guaranteed to read but then, then you've got a better chance yeah let's talk about then the actual writing process you you lay out some some helpful i think do's and don'ts with regard to the actual writing process yeah, I have a whole list of do's and don'ts. I have this, what I call the two heads strategy, which is when you're writing, write. When you're editing, edit. In the UK, we had this, I don't know if you had it. When I was a child, we had this um, TV program called Wurzel Gummidge for children. And it was a scarecrow and he had lots of heads. And he sometimes he would put his happy head on and sometimes he would put his clever head on. And that's what I think of when I think about writing and editing. They are different heads. Mm. You do them differently and not only do you do them differently but i think you should do them in different places so if you write at your computer then you should edit at somebody else's or you should print out and do it somewhere else so that's my first one this is one firm rule for me which is writing and editing are very very distinct another one is i put the triple x method um, because in general you don't find any words with three x's in but what i ask my writers to do is get in flow write I like writing in threes, you know, like lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. <laughs> the silly example. Okay, but if I can only think of lions and tigers and oh, I can't think of another word, triple X, carry on writing. Don't spend all your time thinking of one word. Mm. Just move on, leave the triple X, your brain will do those cycles and it'll come back to it. Mm. And the other thing, I think this is the thing that's helped my clients the most is I I talk about tolerations list, which is as you're going through the writing, you're going to get some bits that are a little bit niggly to you where you think I could do that better or I haven't done research on that or I'm sure there's going to be a better story there. And uh, I run parallel to every writing that I do a tolerations list. So Mm. these are the things that if I get time, I'm going to come back to fix them. And I don't have to worry about them now. They don't have to be in my writing head. They, in my tolerations list and I'm going to tolerate them for now it's okay I, I know they're there I'm going to get to them but I can tolerate them for now and I just pop them in my tolerations list mm. so those are three of my favorite rules that I put on for writing and the first one you mentioned I want to touch on just for a moment I was doing a webinar with someone just a few days ago where we we brought up this topic and it's this this idea of writing and editing while you're writing and trying to get away from that is something that I've always struggled with. The natural thing for me to do is edit as I write. But as I wrote my book and, and as I write anything else these days, I very much try to do exactly what you're what you're saying. Though it is still something I have to be very conscious about. If I'm not, I will fall right back into editing while I'm writing before I realize I'm even doing we're so tricksy on ourselves aren't we (laughs) we really do trick ourselves and the the way i got myself out of it was a very logical way, very engineer's way um i basically said okay so 
if I do this process, which is the write and edit process mixed together. So say I'm writing chapter one, writey, writey, writey. And then the next day I come back and I go, okay, well, I want to edit chapter one, then I'll write chapter two. So I go back, I edit chapter one and write chapter two, writey, writey, writey. And the next day I go, oh, I want to edit a few things in chapter one and chapter two, and then I'll write chapter three. The engineer in me says, okay, now chapter one is going to be bloody brilliant because it's had so many iterations through the process because you never got down to chapter seven uh so it it gets an unfair advantage which is quite good actually because chapter one should be your best in my opinion but it gets an unfair advantage and the other chapters don't get the same treatment so if you can't do it because your brain just wants to go back and fix just think of how unfair you're being to chapter Mm. seven wow i never thought about it like that (laughs) I want all my chapters to be treated fairly. Exactly. Yes, that's that's exactly what I needed to hear. Well, at this point, Debs, what haven't I asked you about that you want to make sure that that we walk away with? Um, The one thing that I wanted to mention is, so this idea of directions map and landmark, uh, the only way you can work out whether you should be writing a directions type book or a landmark type book is to do with the one reader. Okay, so this one reader and this idea of having one really distinct person that you're writing for is what helps you decide, should you be writing a directions book or should you be writing a landmark book? And it comes down to the pain they have, the type of pain that that they are going through. And I use two things. I use bleeding neck for directions book. And the bleeding neck idea came from Perry Marshall. And he talked about they've got a bleeding neck. They've got to get it fixed now. Write a directions book for them. Fix that problem now. Mm. Nothing, No distractions, nothing else. They've got this problem that you can fix for them, and that's a directions book. Landmark books, they are what I call weeping wounds. So they have a pain. Maybe they've got a rock in their shoe, but they can still carry on walking. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. Eventually, that weeping wound is going to turn into a bigger wound and a bigger wound and a bigger problem. But they tend not to notice that until it becomes a bigger problem. So your job with a landmark book is to show them the beauty at the top of the mountain so that they want to fix the weeping wound and so that they don't ever get to the bleeding neck because they come up. And that's what your book does, Jeff. I mean, seriously. So your read to lead is basically... You're saying, hey, we've got this really fabulous mountain here. And if you get to the top of this mountain, if you read as a leader, then, then you know, things are going to be better for you. It's the key to success. That's my flag. <laughs> yes, it is. It's a fantastic flag, and I'm completely in agreement with it. Well, let me ask you about others whose books you've read and enjoyed over the years. This might be like asking you to pick your favorite kid for someone like you, but I'll ask it anyway. Are there two or three books that stand out to you as ones that you can't help but recommend? Yeah, I've got two that I want to recommend. Mm. These are my two that anytime I'm speaking to anybody, one of these two books will pop out of my mouth. The first is the book called The Selling the Invisible by Harry Beckwith. I don't know if you've come across it. It's quite an old book. It's in the 1980s, I think. Mm. And it's about when you're selling a service and, and the value of the service is invisible. You can't like, it's not like a pen. How do you market that? So it's about selling the invisible. It's just a brilliant book. It's mm. very short to read, nice short chapters. You get through it quickly. And every time when I speak to somebody who's maybe making that leap from employed to consultant, I say, you have to read this book first. It's Deb's Law. <laughs> so that's one of my absolute favorite books. And tell me the name of that one again. It's called Selling the Invisible. and the guy is Harry Beckwith. And my favorite of all books 
He's called the goal. I don't know if you've come across this. Eli Goldratt. And I reread it every couple of years. Uh, it's an old book again. Uh, old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> 90s. <laughs> really old. Um, and it's all about the theory of constraints. Now, um, it's not all about the theory of constraints, but one of the best bits in it is about the theory of constraints. Now, I am a constraints type person. I'm an engineer. Constraints are important to me in everything that I do. And the Goal by Eli Goldratt. It's a storybook, but about a manufacturing plant and the guy who's running it and how it's all going wrong. And it's it's basically the hero's journey for engineers. Wow. <laughs> it's the easiest way of describing it. But I love that book too. And whenever I'm trying to help somebody understand the power of constraints and the problem with bottlenecks in their business, then that's the book I recommend. Um, I want to ask you finally, Debs, about this uh, topic of personal knowledge management, how you collect and capture things you want to remember, maybe how you organize them. You talked about the importance of distilling your knowledge earlier. I I lead a cohort called Note Making Mastery. And the third pillar is about note crystallization, basically making sure that the things you're collecting from other people, you're taking time to pour your own thoughts and ideas into the distillation process. So I'd be curious to just kind of know a little bit about how you go about doing that. Basically, what I'm asking you is, in essence, how, how you handle research. What, what does that look like for you? Very chaotic, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> so I have this thing, chaos, constraints, creation. Okay, so I'm happy in chaos. It used to stress me very much to have lots of ideas bouncing around and to read too many things. And it used to stress me out, but I've kind of got comfortable with that chaos. However, uh, and I think chaos is really important. Uh, my little phrase is chaos is a feature, not a book. Um, <laughs> and I like chaos. So I'm happy in chaos. But in order to create something, I go through constraints and theory of constraints, constraints. Mm-hmm. And it's that constraints, the distilling process, the bringing it back to memory, making those connections, mm-hmm. deciding whether you agree or disagree or you need to go deeper. That is part of my constraints process. So I use Notion. That sounds much, much more organized than it is. Yes, it's my hub. And I use Readwise. I love Readwise. Have you come, have you come across Readwise? I could not live without Readwise. You're, you're <laughs> speaking my language. You're talking about Notes apps. You're talking about Readwise. I'm right there with you. <laughs> uh, Readwise, and they just got better and better over the last few years. And such a lovely company. The Readwise helps me from multiple different ways. One is you can highlight and you can kill notes if you don't want them you can bring them all into notion you do actually have this one place of putting them all but right now for that creation part for output because readwise sending you a little five in the mornings um i put my clients notes in there and so now i can i can promote an idea for a client from their books directly it's fabulous um, from readwise so i use readwise now to create as well as just collate and surface Well, Deb's book, again, is called Stop Writing Books, Nobody Reads, The Dangerously Effective Way to Write and Publish a Book That People Read and Refer. It'll help you write a book that does all of those things. I highly recommend it. Debs, thank you again so much for appearing on the Read to Lead podcast. I appreciate it so very much. Thanks, Jeff. I've had a lovely time speaking to you. Hey, thanks for joining me for my chat with Debs Jenkins today. I hope you enjoyed it. For a summary, to connect with Debs and get access to the links and resources we talked about today, go to the show notes page for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 468 for episode 468. Coming up next week, we'll be sitting down with James McKenna as we discuss his book, Upskill, Reskill, Thrive. 
And the week after that, we'll be checking into one of those six books I mentioned at the beginning of the year that you must make room for on your reading list. This will be the third of those six books whose authors we've had a chance to sit down with. The book is The Anxious Achiever, Turn Your Biggest Fears into Your Leadership Superpower, authored by Maura Aarons-Mealy. Then it's Rob Cross and Karen Dillon to discuss the micro-stress effect, how little things pile up and create big problems, and what to do about it. That's just a sneak peek of all that's coming your way later this spring and on into summer 2023. Don't forget for a free book summary every single week and now access to my tools and resources section shared only inside the Read to Lead community. Go to jeffbrown.me. It's free to sign up and get those summaries and other content. jeffbrown.me. Thanks again for checking out the show. That does it for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to Lead.